This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of the show now premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. So how are all of you doing today? For real. Well, I'm hoping that you are just filled, brimming with joy and peace. I'm guessing that the truth is a little bit different. I know my family, my friends, my colleagues, basically everybody I talk to are using words instead like furious, anxious, burnt out, and demoralized. Add to the mix the grief we carry individually and collectively for lives lost over the past few years, and we're all dealing with some really big feelings. Thankfully, today's guest has just released a book that can help us learn to understand them a little bit better and even develop techniques for managing them. Liz Fosline is the co-author and illustrator of Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Liz was my guest when her last book came out, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. Liz, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here again. I've really been looking forward to it, but I want to tell the listeners just a little bit more about you, and then we'll really get into the conversation. So Liz leads the content and communications team at Humu, running scientifically backed workshops for employees at all kinds of organizations that help them build resilience, avoid burnout, especially when working remotely, and effectively harness emotion as a leader. Prior to joining Humu, Liz designed and led workshops for executives at Google, Facebook, Nike, on how to create inclusive cultures. Her writing and data visualization projects have appeared in, on CNN, in The Economist, The Financial Times, and NPR. And her illustrations are everywhere from Adam Grant's LinkedIn postings to my refrigerator. So, Liz, we have so much to learn from you. I've learned so much already. Um, but I want to dive into what I think is an important question when I think about what you shared in this book, aside from the information that's going to help us. You know, with your first one, you would introduce many of us to the idea that there is science-based evidence that emotions matter at work, that it's important to recognize them and talk about them, and you help us learn how to embrace them. But with this book, you and Molly took a giant step further, and you not only talk about the darkest of emotions, but you shared a lot about your own personal struggles. What prompted you to get so personal, and how did you find the courage? Yeah, um... So we, our first book, No Hard Feelings, came out in February 2019. And like you said, very science-backed look at how we can harness emotions to improve things like leadership, teamwork, communication. Um, And that year, so I would say fall of 2019, kind of ironically, Molly and I both started dealing with really hard feelings in our personal lives. So Molly was having chronic pain issues that led her to fall into a really deep pit of despair. And I, my father-in-law had struggled with cancer for 10 years and he started to really lose that battle, which was just like, it's just horrible to watch. Um, And we just both hit a point where all of the traditional science-backed self-help, you know, change the way you act, change the way you think, weren't changing the way we felt. 
And it became, it also got to the point for both of us where it was, okay, we actually need to flag some of what's going on in our personal lives at work because it's starting to affect our work. And we didn't know what to do. So we kind of went back to what we knew, which was researching. And that formed the idea of this new book, Big Feelings. What's funny about it is we pitched it to Penguin, our publisher, in January 2020. So this is pre-pandemic. And it was very much the book that eventually got published. And at the time, Penguin said, this is kind of a depressing book. Like, is there an audience for this? Like, does anyone really want to talk about these hard things in this much depth? And so they very kindly passed. Um, And then fast forward, pandemic hits, George Floyd happens. You know, June 2020, they reach out to us again and they say, remember that book about really hard stuff? Yeah, we want to publish it. <laughs> so um, what's been interesting, though, is we, you know, we interviewed them so many people. And I would say a majority of the conversations were not focused on the pandemic. So I think it's really underscores that, you know, there's just hard things we go through, whether there's a pandemic or not. And sometimes we're going to have to flag that for people we work with or it'll affect our ability to work. And that's what this book focuses on. So one thing before I dive in, um, I just went through a hard thing. I just lost my dad. um, And I'm carrying that with me. And when I sat down to read, um, I was reading both as, you know, interested person, eager to talk with you about it, but also was it going to help me navigate my own emotions and in which direction would they go while I was reading? And I'm happy to report that I felt understood. I felt seen. It was useful. And that um, there's such humor in how you write. The illustrations are so delightful that it became a very an easily digestible way to think about these things that are so hard. So, oh, my gosh, you just made my whole week. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. But I think that's just what every that's what every author wants to hear when they're writing a book. So I really appreciate it. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. But now for mm-hmm. everyone else who has yet to read it, um, one of the things that you just mentioned was the importance of that there's a point when we're suffering that we have to recognize that we can't hide it. Um, and, I'm get, and I think it's for two reasons. One is if we hide it, we're hiding it from ourselves and we can't do that. We've got to face it. But also it impacts the way we function in the world. And there's value to sharing that with the people that we interact with. Um, and while you talked a lot about this in the first book, especially with emotions this dark, um, what advice do you have for how and when we talk to our colleagues or our bosses about these things as we're going through them? Yeah, so it definitely, I get this question a lot and people always ask, should I tell everyone? How much do I tell? And it's very dependent on the organization's culture, how safe you feel, who you're close to. It's very normal to have some colleagues that you might share a little bit more with and some where you kind of just flag, hey, you know, I'm going through a hard time. Um, But it is really important, especially when you, even at the first signs of you starting to notice it impacts your performance, to just flag that for people, because in the face of silence, people will assume the worst and not necessarily that the worst is happening to you, but the worst about you. So unfortunately, that's the truth. So if you, you know, I think this is important for managers to hear, too, if it seems like someone is suddenly disengaged, it doesn't mean that they're lazy or that all of a sudden they don't want to work or contribute. It could be that they're going through a really hard time in their personal life. So 
the simplest way is just to flag to your manager, to your colleagues, to your team, you know, hey, I'm dealing with some challenges in my personal life right now. Um, I'll share more if it's relevant, but I just want to let you know if I seem off, if I'm a little slower to respond than normal, it has nothing to do with you. Sometimes it also means flagging, you know, like I might be offline a bit next week. If you get emails from me late at night, you're not obligated to respond. It's just when I'm trying to fit in work. So making sure that you're preserving healthy norms on your team and also giving some insight into why you might be acting a little different than usual. Um, and then, yeah, you know, obviously like you can figure out how much you want to share. Uh, it, but it really is what just, it's, it's all about like preserving stability for your team, for your colleagues, and then also helping them understand why you might be behaving or performing differently. On the flip side, as manager or mm -hmm. leader, how can we signal that it's safe to share? Yeah, so I think the first thing is sharing yourself. So, you know, when something is happening, modeling that for others, but then making it a standing part of team meetings or one-on-ones to check in. So a question that I really love that I think every, first of all, you should have one-on-ones. <laughs> At yeah. Umu, our research shows that I think one in four people never have a regular one-on-one -on -one with their manager. And of those that do, only 50% have one every week. So there's already a huge opportunity. Just put it on the schedule. Um, and then the question that I really encourage managers to ask is, what can I do to better support you this week? And you should just ask that every single week. And sometimes it might be nothing. <laughs> sometimes it might be, I have a question about this. And then sometimes it's going to be this like really heavier thing that someone is going through. Um, but to me, it comes down to creating that safety at the outset so that when something happens, it's already been established. It's not that like now you have to earn trust in this moment that's already difficult and emotionally heightened. It's interesting. Just to share, we had a recent experience with this where I always ask the team, and, and we have one-on-ones and we have a team meeting, but I always ask Great. my team, what can I do to support you? Where do you need help? And everyone's saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, but saving it for in private. And then I came back, and this was actually coming back from my father's death. I couldn't hide my own grief. And so I said, we're going to start with and this is actually a nod to some of my colleagues at the McNulty Leadership Program. They do an amazing job with this. But mm -hmm. how are we showing up today? Where are each of we, each of us? And I shared that I was navigating my grief and my stress, but excited to see people. And I noticed, and I now think it's not a coincidence, that then they started to share accordingly. And the dialogue has shifted as a result. And I'm finding that people are acknowledging where they need help and offering to help each other with a different um, comfort than they might have mm -hmm. before. Is this tracking with what the research tells us? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, it's definitely one thing for a manager, anyone in a leadership position to say something is, it is, is okay, but then a very different thing for them to actually do it and show that it's okay. So yeah, I, I think it's, especially if you're a leader, kind of incumbent upon you if you want to set that healthy, open, supportive work environment to be a little more open. And then also to flag, I think it's totally fine to flag what you need from the team. Um, people usually really respect that and will step up in ways that you didn't even know that they could. And I think that also builds bonds is often people don't know how to help. <laughs> so even if it's just saying, you know, like, 
just be a little more patient with me. Um, I think that goes a long way. Um, so there's one other question about how you brought the book to life. Um, as you and Molly acknowledge, you're both white women. You're of a similar age. Um, you have enjoyed similar kinds of success and similar kinds of privileges. How did you make sure that the what you're sharing went beyond your own experiences? Yeah, it's a great question. So we definitely tried to include stories from a range of voices. So that was something I think we ended up, we'd surveyed like 1,500 people who had read our first book and then asked them what stories they'd be willing to share and then really looked at it through a lens of, we want this book to be broadly useful with, without glossing over structural forces that have an absolutely enormous effect on how we feel, how we, what feelings we think we can express, especially in the workplace. So we wanted it to be, here's a bunch of tips, <laughs> try them out, see what works for you. There's not one size fits all. And then here are stories from people who might, you might see yourself in them. They might be very different from you, but hopefully in that range of stories, you'll also understand that these emotions are normal. And that even if the, you know, you might be facing, people probably are facing sort of different contextual issues um, or different, again, structural forces that I think there is some comfort in, okay, other people have gone through this. I can learn from their stories as well. But we definitely, we also talk about this, um, for example, in the anger chapter, really hard to talk about anger and anger expression without acknowledging that women face more stereotypes or punish more black women, especially there's the stereotype of the angry black woman. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this is we also tried to subvert some of those stereotypes in how we presented the stories. So one of the stories we share is my friend, Joy Akuda, who is a black woman. And after George Floyd's murder, she kickstarted the movement that made June Juneteenth a national holiday. She's like absolutely incredible. And initially, I will admit, I thought about that being in the anger chapter of this example of her being so angry. And when I spoke with her, it just she definitely was angry, but it became clear that it was much more motivated by despair. And that caused me to reassess like, in the anger chapter, we actually tried to feature stories of Asian Americans who talk often about how they feel like they're not allowed to express anger. So even in the placement of the stories, we tried to be intentional about, can we bust some of these myths that we might not even be aware that we hold? I love that. And, and that it does two things. When it models for all of the readers, different correlations of identities with feelings, and it can also help people feel seen and understood and respected with more dimension than they might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So anger, despair, those are two of the seven. Um, I'll cut to the chase for the readers. There are seven key emotions that are outlined in the book, uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. How did you and Molly land on these seven? Yes. So we, it started, I think we had a list of 12 and that was based again on our personal experiences of what we were going through. Um, and then it's, it's, you know, none of these show up in isolation. <laughs> so we you sort of have to force them into buckets for a book. Um, but so we had a kind of a mishmash of emotions and then we surveyed 1500 people and just asked them, you know, which of these have you felt? Do you feel most frequently? Which of these resonate most with you? And one thing that I personally found really interesting was we then started to interview people 
And within that, people have pointed out um, comparison, for example, is not an emotion. It's a behavior. But, but it causes so about, many emotions. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but when we, so originally that chapter was about envy. And when we asked people about envy, we had a moderate response. But then when we would say the word comparison, we had this overwhelming response. And so we really decided to meet people where they are. And what was interesting to me is that I think some of these emotions are so stigmatized that though people can identify the behavior in which they're engaging, there's still a little distance from the emotion that it causes. Um, so that's why perfectionism, also not an emotion, but it was the word that people identified with most. Um, so I also feel a responsibility to note, there are a lot of useful tools in the book, but it's not to be confused with moments when we need professional help. Um, what would you like to say to listeners about how to think about that, whether it's to point themselves towards it or somebody they care about as they're taking in the book? Yeah, so Molly and I have both very much benefited from professional help. Um, so I would always, or, you know, there's obviously like financial constraints involved. Like, you know, there's a lot of privilege in being able to just get a therapist tomorrow. Right. Um, but I think it's usually only helpful. So I would always try to encourage people um, to see this as one tool in a larger toolkit. And then especially if, you know, if, if you're having thoughts of harming yourself, of just if it, you know, nothing seems to be helping you, then it's it's really incumbent upon you or the people around you to help you find professional help. So yeah, this should absolutely should not be a replacement for therapy. And I also really appreciate that, particularly at the beginning of the chapter on despair, you noted where there are hotline numbers and free resources that people can go to to get help. Yeah, yeah, that was really important to us. All part of ways that I think you did a really thorough and responsible job of putting this together so that we can all learn from it and actually kind of laugh along the way. I was um, sharing with the listeners the key emotions that you and Molly address in the book. And I wanted to start with one of them, which is uncertainty. As um, one of the many things I do at work, I'm an innovator. I develop, bring new ideas to life. And I usually think I'm quite comfortable with ambiguity. Um, but that's when it's about a new idea coming to life. And I discover that many of the people on my team and on lots of teams really, really hate ambiguity. And then when we rise even out of our own work and we think about the world we're living in, the uncertainty of it, as you guys describe it, can really be untenable. Um, why is it so destabilizing for people? And how does it relate to anxiety and fear? Yeah, so research shows that we would rather be certain that something terrible is going to happen tomorrow than have a 50% chance of something bad happening. So even though there's a lower <laughs> likelihood, we just it, we feel like we can control things more when we have certainty. Um, so the first thing is you actually never have certainty. Right. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, that's a good or bad for listeners, uh, but I... I think it actually it can be comforting in moments when we feel like everything is very unstable to look back at times that we did persevere through something like that. And even to say, you know, you really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and you've been OK. Um, the big emotion that uncertainty creates within us is anxiety. Uh, and in the in the chapter, we make this very specific distinction between anxiety, which is this burden, the sort of inner turmoil that we feel in the face of uncertain futures and fears, which are tied to very specific outcomes. 
And one of the tips we give is it's actually really valuable to sit with your anxiety and turn it into a fear or a list of fears. So often what we do is we wake up in the morning, feel very uncertain, feel very anxious, and just start doing what psychologists call anxious fixing. So I used to be horribly guilty of this. I would like, you know, empty the dishwasher, get through my email, get through my Twitter, <laughs> like do all this stuff in this attempt to run away from my feelings. And I never felt better because I wasn't sitting with the core, what was driving that anxiety. So instead we say, actually sit with it and ask yourself, what am I afraid of? And when you have that list, you can start to better understand well, what steps can I take to mitigate some of these things? Would the worst outcome actually be that bad? Could I be okay in that situation? And that's much more productive as opposed to just having all of this, again, inner turmoil and trying to run from it in a myriad of ways. I have to tell you, when I read it, it hits so close to home. In our household, we call it lateral productivity but we're going to be replacing it with these new terms. <laughs> and um, my partner and I both do it whenever there's something we're anxious about avoiding. Um, it's amazing how clean the house gets. And during the period of time when I was taking care of my dad, I felt this compulsion to fold every towel exactly the same way and clean out the spice cabinet. Like, why was that so important? But like you were yeah. saying, the big feelings were really hard to sit with. And it might have actually been healthier to not worry about the towels, but instead sit with those uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, yeah. And I, I will say, sometimes it's totally fine to just fold the towels. <laughs> you also just need a break. Um, not to mention they looked really nice when they were done. I'm sure, yeah. Um, but generally, you know, if you just continue to do that day after day, then you're suppressing a lot and you're just wearing yourself out because no one can be a towel folding machine without... <laughs> burning out at some point. Right. And um, and that does bring us to burnout. Um, I had had my busiest season of the year um, before my dad got sick. And it had been about like over for about a week. So I was still processing it and then went down for you know a major life event is one way of putting it and came home really depleted. And when I was reading in the chapter, one of the suggestions you gave um, was about operating at 80 percent. And it felt like you turned a light bulb on for me, almost mm. like when we're training for I'm a runner. And when you train for a race, you don't train at race pace. You train at a sustainable space. You go low and slow so that you have some gas in the tank and you know can sprint mm -hmm. at the end. So talk to me about why 80 percent and what that means on a day to day basis. Yeah, so this is it's actually very tied into perfectionism, which is this feeling that we always need to be producing, we always need to be doing in order not to fail, in order not to be seen as um, not a great contributor, not a great employee. And again, this is, I absolutely used to run at 100%. So if there was a quieter afternoon on a Thursday, I would create new projects for myself, I would reach out to people, I would just, you know, just start doing things instead of just not just taking a break <laughs> like this is a slower afternoon I'm going to use this time to recharge and that's fine until you know you have a really tough life event that you go through or even there's a new project that happens and suddenly you're being asked to operate at 120 percent because you have absolutely no give in your schedule or your energy and then that's when you risk burning out so operating at 80 percent is just stop doing stuff, right? Like <laughs> right. It's, it's not, you know, it's not just totally check out of your job. 
but it's very normal for there to be cyclical periods at work um, that on a Friday afternoon there, you might've completed all your work by 2 PM and then, you know, maybe still be available on email. So you can't answer questions, but it's perfectly fine to go for a walk around the block, read a magazine. That's, you know, speaking of running, that's kind of the investment you're making and being able to continue to have a sustainable long-term career. So it's, it's giving yourself a little grace so that when things pick up, you're operating at your max capacity, not being asked to operate far beyond it. And I love those examples because it's not just leaving room for when hard things happen, but it also leaves room for when exciting opportunities happen that are worth picking up the pace for, but you're not depleted going into them. So when something special is happening, you can bring your best self to it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this is, I love that you brought that up. It's something I've started asking myself too. So I've also heard from a lot of people that they have a really hard time saying no. And so it's valuable to remember that every time you say yes, you're actually saying no to something that you're not thinking about. So when someone says, here's kind of a non-urgent, non-important project, can you take this on? And you know, if you say yes, you're saying no to your well-being. You're saying no to maybe a better opportunity that's more worthy of your time to really delighting that client. So getting clear in your mind of if I do X, what might I not be able to do? It's a wonderful way to reframe it. So there's one of the other, there was a chapter you're mentioning before on comparison. That also really hit home. Um, I call it the Facebook experience where um, I don't know why I'm scrolling. I see pictures of people I haven't spoken to since I was in high school. And all of a sudden, depending on what's in that photo is how I feel about myself, which I recognize is kind of crazy. Apparently, I'm not alone. And there's some science behind this. Yes. So humans are relational species. Um, I think one misconception is we believe if we get off Facebook, will be free from comparison. <laughs> and that's not true, right? Like the way that we form our identities is largely based on looking at the world around us. So how do you know that you are tall? Because you're taller than someone else. How do you know you are good at something? Because of you got an 80% or sorry, 95% <laughs> on the test where other people got 80%. So it's just built into the way that we operate. There's this great study um, that I thought was delightful where they gave monkeys... I think it was cucumbers, which are tasty to monkeys, but not great. And they all happily munched on the cucumbers. And then they gave some of the monkeys grapes, which are really sweet and delicious. And the monkeys that had gotten the cucumbers looked around and saw they had gotten a, a grape and started freaking out. <laughs> so it's like this very <laughs> fundamental thing within us. Um, but the problem is we tend to not only compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths, but we compare our situation to this like amalgamation of everyone else's strengths. So when you're on Facebook, or I'll use myself, I won't make assumptions. <laughs> um, when I'm on social media, I see, you know, a friend just had a baby. Another friend is vacationing in Italy. Another friend just got promoted and is leading a 200 person team. And in my head, that turns into one point of comparison, which is this magical, mythical human being who just had a baby in a villa in Italy <laughs> while managing 200 people. And of right. course, I feel bad about myself because <laughs> I'm not doing the work of like, well, the person who had a baby is on maternity leave. She's not in Italy. <laughs> right. You know, so we and I can speak about this more, but it's 
we, we jump to these comparisons that are completely inaccurate and we just immediately feel bad and don't explore deeper. So given that it's so intrinsic, it's so endemic to who we are and how we operate, it's got to have a function that's not just negative. Where is comparison useful um, versus where it's dangerous? So as these feelings emerge, we can figure out how can we use them to learn? Yeah, so it's useful in that it actually really reveals what we value if we listen to it. So, for example, if there's someone at your work who always gets to work on these creative projects and you find yourself really envious of that individual, instead of suppressing that or trying to hide from it, it's actually useful to think, well, maybe this is an indicator that I want to take on more creative work. And then the next step, too, is often the people that cause the most envy within us are actually our best professional mentors because they've been able to achieve something that we want for ourselves. So I think it's actually really important, especially when we're talking about crafting more meaningful lives for ourselves to listen to those things. Um, So, you know, when I, I just, I remember when I was working as an economic consultant and I was for a variety of reasons, really miserable in that job. Um, and I, yeah, I I just remember going to dinner with a friend who was a writer and that I was so envious of her. Um, and that was to me an early signal of maybe what I'm doing now isn't what's best suited to me. And maybe there's smaller ways that I could try to explore bringing some more creativity or doing some more writing in my own life. So this is the second instance of telling us that emotions can be data. We tend to label emotions as good or bad, and they, they just, they're responses to stimuli. And so they contain useful information. And, you know, it's, there is work that needs to be done in decoding it. So if you're frustrated by a coworker, it could be that you just didn't sleep enough, <laughs> or it could be, and you need to go to bed, or it could be that they consistently interrupt you. And so those are both useful signals that can help you take the next step towards feeling better. So in one case, it's getting a good night's sleep. In another, it's maybe having a conversation with that person. Um, But, you know, that's the frustration. It's really valuable to listen to what it might be telling you. But the key thing is to listen, is to become present enough when the emotion hits that you can back up from it and say, hey, why is this happening? What is this about? Yes. And that won't always be possible in the moment. <laughs> so we also tell people, explore your emotions when you can do so without becoming very emotional. And so it might be that you need to set it aside and fold the towels, go for a walk on the block, whatever it is, and then later come back to it. So speaking of learning to understand emotions and manage them, and you tapped into this before is anger and particularly um, gender issues and racial issues that come with our anger and how it's perceived by other. Um, We've been taught for so long that it can be a liability to express it, that it's destructive, unattractive, dangerous. Um, On the other hand, venting, we think, can help us feel better. And, you know, I felt this going into it, and then the book helped me look at this more clearly, that it's actually kind of the opposite. So with venting in particular, there's this cathartic release. If you have a trusted confidant and it's, you know, I can't believe they said this jargony word 16 times in the meeting and the other person validates you, it feels good. 
it's more when venting becomes chronic, when it slips into rumination, that it becomes destructive to you and the person that you're speaking with. So we spoke with one woman who said that she used to always complain with her colleagues in the break room about everything that was wrong with the organization. But after a while, she just found herself really dejected about why am I working at a place where everything's so wrong? And so instead of doing the venting in the break room, she started to spend some of those breaks learning, like exploring the employee development opportunities. And that actually helped her feel a lot better and advance in her career. So there is a point, you know, totally fine to blow off some steam to, you know, be annoyed at something. But then it's about, well, if this is consistently an issue, what can I do to fix it? Or what steps can I take to feel better? You're also making me wonder how it impacts the group dynamic. Um, I had noticed early in my career, I called it the tornado of negativity, um, that colleagues, particularly of a certain level, um, would gather together and all complain about things. And it was like everybody egged each other on. And it just became this growing tornado of negativity. And in some ways, it would create a truth for them about the organization. And that it seemed like it it was almost impossible to then make that go away. It feels good. (laughs) And it's easy to point out what's wrong. It's really hard to fix that and to create a solution. And so I think it, you know, we do sometimes get like, oh, I'm smart because I've pointed out this is the dissenter in meetings, right? They feel smart because they can always poke holes in everything. And one of the best things that I saw a manager do that I sometimes now implement as well, this was in a previous job, which was you can complain about anything, you can bring up any issues, but you always have to append it with colon, here's a proposed solution. And so I think it sort of forces you to... Either you just gain empathy for, oh, I see that this is a big problem because it's just really (laughs) hard to be a leader, Um, or you propose some cool new idea and then the problem gets fixed. But I've always loved that you can complain, but you have to propose one solution. It like helps people sort of get out of that only poking holes mentality. And it sounds like it gets them out of it, not just as a way to, that people will do it because it's a way to feel powerful when you don't otherwise have power, but that it keeps you in a negative place as opposed to taking it and switching it into how can we move out of cynicism and be positive and proactive about something. Yes. And and also to flag that that might be for you at some point, I need a new job, right? (laughs) Right. Um, There's information (laughs) in that. Yeah. So it's not that you have to make the best out of a terrible situation. It's more, how do I feel better? Like, what would that look like to me? So, Liz, we mentioned burnout briefly before as being really tied into perfectionism. But I want to explore it a little bit um, more because um, you helped me understand it in different ways than I previously had considered it. Um, And as a combination of things, Um, you described it as it's a combination of exhaustion, cynicism, and a low degree of effectiveness. Can you share? And also, you, you guys gave us an amazing assessment to help see where we fall in this. Could you talk a little bit about why those three things, how they work together, and um, how the assessment operates? Yes. Yeah, so the assessment is based on the Maslach Burnout Inventory, which is sort of the first clinical assessment of are you actually burnt out? And what does that mean? Um, And so ours is a a modified version, just shorter or simpler. Um, But 
essentially when people talk about burnout, um, when they talk about exhaustion, I think that word has just been used to describe so many different emotions. And so this is that piece, again, of better understanding what you're feeling to know what needs you need to address. So what the assessment aims to do is help you figure out, yes, exactly like you said, do you have too much on your plate? In which case you need to set up some more boundaries. We give tips in the book. Do you just feel like you've lost connection with the people around you? Do you feel cynical about the organization? You might have a great work-life balance, but you just don't care about your coworkers or you don't know any of them. And that's also going to lead to burnout. And then the last one is when you feel that the effort that you're putting forward is not resulting in anything. So those are really different shades of exhaustion Mm -hmm. and require different steps towards feeling better. Um, And we go into a lot more detail in the book, but we fundamentally wanted to help people get to a better place. And that starts with pinpointing the needs driving what you're feeling. I have to say the assessment, it took only a couple of minutes, but it was really enlightening. If people want to find the assessment, it's in the book, but where can they find it online? Yeah, they can find it at lizandmolly.com. So M-O-L-L-I-E is Molly's spelling. And there's also going back to something you said earlier, we also have an uncertainty assessment, which will help you. We encourage teams to take this together so you can understand if you're an uncertainty seeker, so you actually thrive in moments of chaos, but you work with uncertainty avoiders who really don't like to take on risk. Um, there's, we suggest some things that you should do to, to best work together. You know what? I hadn't thought about um, giving it to the team, but I may, because I actually think that balance of the people like me who like eat it up and then others, um, <laughs> but we need each other. You know, having both mm-hmm. of those types of people on a team are what help make new things happen, but happen well. Yes. Yeah, I would. I'm, if you do it, I'm so curious to see hear how it goes. I will let you know. Okay, so now I want to circle back to this perfectionism thing, because one of the things as a leader that I think about all the time with my own team, how to be compassionate and also how to encourage and facilitate high performance. And in thinking about perfectionism, and it was actually, um, I heard somebody talking about perfection as a goal for something. And I tried to replace it with the notion of excellence, um, that we can't ever be perfect. It's a uh, Um, it'll be actually a really destructive thing to keep pursuing. But we can try and be excellent. How does that, is that, or at least that's how I was thinking about it, is that a useful reframing? And how does it fit into this in a way that can help us have healthy, happy, productive teams? Yeah, so I think it's, I definitely think it's healthy. Perfectionism, there, there's no, there is no perfect. It's subjective. So if I asked you to describe your perfect day, it would probably look different than my perfect day. So already there's, we're not working towards the same goals. Um, I think with excellence, it's easier to, to have clear outcome metrics that everyone can work towards together. We get the question a lot, you know, what's the difference between a perfectionist and a healthy striver? So people often will say, you know, I, I don't want to lose the ambitious part of myself. Um, so how do I know if it's healthy or unhealthy? And Healthy striver is you aim for 100%, you get a 96, you feel really good, you learn the question that you got wrong, you remember it for next time, you move on. Perfectionism is about the fear of failure. So it's you aim for 100, you get a 96, and you never stop beating yourself up for those two questions you missed. 
And it's not a, what can I learn from this? It's, I'm a horrible person. I will never achieve. I don't deserve to be on the team. That kind of a really negative response that continues for a long time and actually inhibits your performance. That's when it's veered into this. So it's when your identity is tied into the perfection. Yes. And when you, when you, when you never give yourself credit for what you've achieved, you're only focusing on that six, 4%. You're only looking at the gap. You never measure the gain. So you also talked about the difference between guilt and shame in a related way that I thought was really interesting. Can you share a little on that? Yes. So I will also say I really recommend Brene Brown on shame. This is why we didn't yes. include it as a chapter because we were like, she's, <laughs> she's, she's got covered it. it. <laughs> yeah. But we, yeah, we have a, a small sidebar. So shame is this response of I am a bad person and guilt is the specific. So I did a bad thing, but I can learn from it. I can switch it. And so it's similar to anxiety and fear. Shame is this innate, I can never change. It's more like a fixed mindset of I'm a bad person versus guilt, which is correctable. So yeah, I did a bad thing. I interrupted, but it's one action and I can take a different action next time. It doesn't fundamentally make me a bad person. So it seems like you're usefully giving us opposite sides of the same coin in different regards. Maybe that's the wrong metaphor, but um, that by looking at this difference between when is it me? When is it my behavior? When is it um, that I failed versus I got something wrong, so it's an opportunity to learn? That with mm -hmm. those kinds of reframing, we can make a big difference in our own well-being and how effectively we navigate these challenges. Yeah, it's ultimately just about helping people feel like it's worth trying something different. It's worth improving, right? You're not fixed in who you are today, you can feel better and make changes, that kind of thing. So along the lines of feeling better, um, while we've talked about all these problems, these challenges we have, you also give some really easy to apply, useful mechanisms for how we can navigate these things. Um, they include ritual and routines, meditation, exercise. Um, why is it that rituals and routines are so useful? They, they just ground us. And I think they also take away some decision fatigue. So it's a decision we don't have to make. And it it's just something to come back to. So again, talking about how we like stability, the ritual creates stability. And my favorite part of the ritual research is that it doesn't matter what the ritual is. Do a cartwheel every day at five, whatever. Just have a ritual. <laughs> it's just like doing the same thing that's valuable. And it also, they showed that even people who don't believe in the power of ritual, when they are asked to do something at the same time every day, they feel better. So you don't have to believe me and you don't have to do anything specific. Just do something consistently and then let me know how it goes. In a week. Okay. So a new ritual that I have is I'm doing a daily meditation. I think it's life-changing. How much of that is because it's a daily ritual and talk about the value of meditation. I don't know the percentage split. <laughs> That's, I would love, like, I would find that really interesting to study. Um, but I would say the the meditation itself is one of the most valuable things it helps us do is distance our thoughts, distance ourselves from our thoughts, and realize that they don't necessarily reflect reality. So it's very easy to make a mistake and then jump to, I'm always going to fail. Good employees never do this. 
And that's not true. Um, and it also, again, it's, it's just like not a healthy mindset to have. Um, one of my favorite meditation tips that um, comes from the founder of Headspace is this idea of noting. So you just note with one word what's going on in your head. And I, the word that I use the most is catastrophizing, <laughs> where it's like, I just can get to this really dark place really fast. And it's so valuable for me to step back from that and just say, I'm catastrophizing. And just having that, flagging that for myself allows me again to put some distance between the thought and my certainty that the thought is emblematic of like what's actually going to so happen. So again, even just a moment of distance to consider what's the information in the emotional experience, giving yeah, it some yeah. language so that we can find a way to grapple with it, that alone helps make it easier to handle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So those are things that we do that are kind of mental exercises and things that we weave into our life um, intellectually in some ways. But there's body stuff. There's exercising. There's sleep. How does that relate to it? So important. Yeah. So one of the things I talk about that's actually an early sign of burnout that people really seems to resonate um, is this concept of revenge bedtime procrastination. <laughs> so this is, you're exhausted, you've had back-to-back -back meetings, you know, you've taken care of a loved one, whatever, you've cooked dinner, you've done all these things, you get into bed, it's late, you're exhausted, and you don't go to sleep. No, you I'm on... shopping for shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a party for to shoes. which I have not been invited. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just like, and it's, and there's nothing bad with shopping for shoes. It's, it's bad when it starts, it's self-sabotage. So you're not actually getting the rest that your body is yelling at you that you need. Right. And this is a sign that you have not set aside enough time for yourself throughout the day. So it's our attempt to claw back some form of control. And many people will talk about this, parents, especially like, this is my me time. This is the only time I have to do whatever I want. And so that is a sign that you need to start living at 80%, looking for those moments. It doesn't have to be a huge vacation, but maybe there's a meeting that you can switch to an email that you can push off for a week to just give yourself a little more me time throughout the day so that you don't feel like your me time is now cutting into the sleep that you need to function. And another thing that you refer to at different points throughout the book is reframing negative self-talk. Um, it's a skill that's hard to learn but can be super powerful. Um, like one of the examples you gave was when somebody was talking about, I think it was regret. I'm so lonely, I shouldn't have moved. What's a different way mm -hmm. of, re as an example, of how to reframe an idea like that? Yeah, so I'll share two phrases that I found particularly helpful. The first is telling yourself instead, I am a person learning to. So if you say, I moved and I don't have friends. It's it's not, you know, I moved, I don't have friends, I'll never have friends. This is the worst decision I've ever made. It's I just moved and I'm a person learning to land in a new city. And that's a really different way of approaching your day. It makes you more open to trying new things, to the idea that things might get better. The other one is swapping I should have with what if. So this doesn't always work, but in cases for me personally, I look back at my early 20s and I, in my career, in my personal life, I always think I just, I should have acted with more confidence. You know, I should have put on the sequin red dress 
And I just was too insecure to do that. Or I should have taken this leap of faith and, and volunteered to give the big client presentation. And now I've started to switch to what if I did that? What if tomorrow I volunteered for the scary thing? And what if I just said, screw it, putting on the sparkly red sequin dress and <laughs> right. going on having a good time. Um, and so again, it's like this seemingly simple shift that moves us from getting mired in the past and more towards tomorrow's an opportunity, today is still an opportunity. What can I do so that I don't have those regrets in the future so that I feel better? It also seems like it's reframing judgment into possibility. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, it's taking away this. This comes out of UC Berkeley. These researchers published an article that said, feeling bad about feeling bad makes you feel worse, (laughs) (laughs) which I love. Very simply stated. But yeah, you don't have to, like, if you're not feeling great, you don't need to layer a bunch of other stuff onto that. There's, you know, you can move forward. So it sounds like if we dial back and think about the positive, like a positive emotion that's an antidote to a lot of this, um, I keep thinking it's about empathy, empathy for ourselves Mm -hmm. and empathy for each other. Is that a fair way of framing it? Yeah, so people are interested. There's a lot of research around self-compassion, which is essentially the same thing. Um, So I would definitely look into that. The the other thing I want to say before we close that I think is important in this conversation is which we talk about in the book, there are also moments when you just can't make these mindset changes. And in those moments, it's about getting through the moment. Um, So the book is very much not like, you need to be positive all the time. If you're having a bad day, here's how to make it a great day. It's more, life is hard. You're gonna go through hard times. Here are some tools that can help you take micro steps towards feeling Mm -hmm. better. Um, And, you know, just be open to the idea that you can feel better one day, but it's not to minimize that there are days that are just going to be brutal and you just need to live through. Liz, the the whole chapter on despair, um, it was so, the honesty and candor was stunning, but it was also really beautiful and really helpful. Um, it uh, gave language to those kinds of intense feelings, but it also sensitized me to people that I've seen in the throes of despair around me that I love and I don't haven't understood and known how to help. And it made me understand their struggle better and to recognize what a profound accomplishment something like taking a shower or going to the grocery store can be. Um, so I think you guys yeah. did a beautiful job with it. Thank you. That's really nice to hear. So now that I've like hopefully filled you up with love, I think the book is amazing. If people want to learn more about it or you, where can they find you? Yep. Best place is lizandmolly.com. Um, again, M-O-L-L-I-E. And then our social media presences, same thing, at Liz and Molly. And then the book is available everywhere books are sold. Awesome. Liz, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and for, yeah, such thoughtful questions as well. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just subscribe. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXMBusiness and find me on LinkedIn. Thanks, as always, to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our amazing sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and Kara Pogue from the WPA team. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you You've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, 
please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.